Let me start by asking you a question this morning. If you were to turn back the clock 20 years, would the details of your life today look exactly like you planned them 20 years ago? No. I don't think I know a single person that would say, yes, life has gone just how I planned it, right? Because the truth is, life is fragile and tomorrow is uncertain. And that is as true for the big things as it is for the little things. You may plan that you're going to have the whole family here at 9 o'clock for Sunday school. And come 9.05, you've got one child in the van and one child looking for shoes and milk all over the floor. And you don't know what you're going to do with yourself, right? You might find online or in a cookbook the perfect recipe for chocolate chip waffle cookies. And you might see that picture and spend your afternoon making this instead. <laughs> Things just don't go according to plan. And that happens with big stuff too. Sometimes a couple plans that they are going to start having children in two years and then a week later they're looking at a positive pregnancy test. Sometimes you plan for your retirement and the day draws near and then the diagnosis comes and changes everything. Life is fragile and life is not certain. No plan can be sure. And as good red-blooded Americans, we want to look at that as a problem to solve, right? We can lessen that problem, make life more sure, make things more certain. We can buy insurance and we can get good health care to take care of ourselves and we can plan wisely and we can save. Those are good gifts from God, but we can never make life completely sure. And so we erupt sometimes in anger when our plan doesn't work out or we just live our lives in perpetual anxiety because maybe the plan won't work out tomorrow or we make compromises so that the plan will work out. We blame others. We sulk. We have a hard time dealing with the fact that things don't go the way that we planned them. But there is a right way to handle the uncertainty and the fragility of life. There's a right way to plan when hardly anything ever goes according to plan. And the Bible says there is and that that answer, though it's as counterintuitive as many other things in the Bible, is as fresh as the morning air. Now, one of the fruits of Christian maturity that I think Jesus wants to bear in us this morning is the ability to plan in a godly and wise way that can handle the fact that things don't go according to plan in a way that doesn't lead to anxiety and frustration and high blood pressure and everything else. A heart that embraces God's rule over all creation and can't wait to see what he does next. And today, we're gonna to look at a text in the book of James that I believe lays a firm foundation upon which we can make godly and wise plans. Here's what I hope it does for us. For some of you who do not follow Jesus and would not call yourselves a Christian, I hope that it shows you something of how good Jesus' ways are. Because the truth is, he laid down his life to pay for our sins, to make a way that we could come back and follow him again. There's no better life than following him right now, but that's not the half of it. What's waiting for us in heaven, eternity with him for those who follow him is a sweet thing. And I hope that this shows you just a little bit of how sweet fellowship with him is. For those of you that are walking with him, I pray that it bears that very fruit of maturity in you, that heart that trusts in Jesus, that knows that life is fragile and uncertain and is ready to plan in a flexible way. 
So let's look at James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. If you don't have a Bible, grab the dark pew Bible in front of you, start at the back, and flip to page 179. That's where you're going to find it. We're going to read James, 14, uh, sorry, James 4, 13 through verse 17. The Lord's servant writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or do that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Amen. So what I want to do here first is walk through the logical connections between the things that James is saying here. And then we'll talk about what that means for us, the sort of hearts that the Lord wants to develop in us and the lifestyle he wants to develop in us through these words. So how we're going to do this first then is we're going to look at the different things that James says in this very text. And then we're going to look at the words that connect them. And I want you to know that we're doing that because sometimes when you're looking at one of the letters in the Bible and you're just having a tough time making sense of it. This is a good way to see what the writer is doing. They often in the letters say something, use a connecting word, say another thing, use a connecting word. You can kind of map it out by doing that. So let's look at the word that's between verse 13 and 14. The word that starts verse 14 is the word yet. And he's using that as a way of saying what people are doing in verse 13 is wrong because of verse 14, right? We might say a similar thing. A mother might say to a son, you say that you studied hard on that test, yet I never saw you bring a book home and you got a 65 on it, right? Here is why what you are saying is wrong. And I will use the word yet to show that. James is doing the same thing. You're saying this, yet... Here's the reality of it. Here's why that's wrong. So what people are doing in 13 is wrong because of verse 14. To make confident assertions about your plans for the future. I will go to this place. I will make a profit. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. To make those kind of confident, self-assured plans is wrong because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And because your life is a vapor in the first place. So, you know, encouragement on top of encouragement, not only might you lose tomorrow's ballgame, but you may not make it to tomorrow's ballgame, right? Uh, it just, just to be that confident is wrong for both of those reasons. And so then let's look at the word that connects verse 14 and 15. Right, it says, instead you ought to say, right? That's the phrase that connects those. Okay, so instead of making those really confident assertions, here's what you should do. Say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or do that, right? Because life's uncertain, life is fragile. And so it's better to say, if the Lord wills, because he's the one that's in charge of life. He's the one that will make all of this happen. So if he wills, I'll do this or I'll do that. And then another connecting word, but, but as it is, Okay, that tells you that he's back to describing verse 13 again, right? The things that y'all are saying, we will do this, we will do that, confident planning. But as it is, you're, you're boasting in your arrogance, he says, to, to make really confident assertions. We will win tomorrow. Our business will make this much money next year. We will do this with a knowing self-assuredness. That's actually boasting, and it's grounded in arrogance. 
and a heart that says, I have the skills in my hands and in my brain to pull this off, and I know that I'm going to do it. And all such boasting, he says, is wrong. Can you see how just looking at those words that connect to thoughts can make sense of a whole passage sometimes? It's a great way to study the letters if you're ever stumped in that. And so essentially, to make those confident plans is both wrong and a bad idea because life is uncertain and life is fragile. And so we've got to stay inside. This is the Lord who does it. If the Lord wills, then, then I'll do this. I plan to do this. I hope to do this or do that. But I won't boast of my arrogance and claim that I know what tomorrow is going to bring. So maybe to give you one example, if you were to say, uh, let's say that you're a salesperson and you've got a really big meeting book next month, right? You could talk about that in two different ways. You could say, next month I am going to Chicago and I'm gonna meet with the buying manager of a, of a Fortune 500 company and I know what this guy needs and I know my skills as a salesman, I know just what to do, I'm gonna drive up there, I'm gonna sit down at that meeting and I can tell you right now, he's gonna order 100,000 units of our product because that's how much he needs and I know how it's gonna go and I've already worked out the commission and I'm going to bring home a check to this much to my family and I cannot wait to cash it right. Confident assertions that reveals that on the inside there's boasting and self-reliance, right? Because you're relying on your skills to do all this. On the other hand, same situation, same goal, you could say, man, I pray the Lord gives me another month of good health because if he does, I've got an appointment next month with this guy in Chicago. And if the Lord blesses me and that meeting goes well, he might buy 100,000 units of our product. And if he does that, man, I could provide for my wife, I could provide for my kids, I could give, I could do so much if just the Lord would bless me right then. Can you see the difference, right? One is revealing a heart that trusts in itself, and one is revealing a heart that trusts in God because it knows that life is fragile and life is uncertain. So another way to say this is that your life and your future are not in your hands, but in God's hands. And whether or not you realize that in your heart is gonna come out in the way that you talk about your plans. This is that same thing from James again. What's inside is coming out, right? Wisdom is shown by her deeds out of overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If your heart in the end is depending on God on the inside, that's gonna reflect in your plans on the outside. Now that's true in your personal life, that's true in my personal life, but it's true for us as a church as well when we talk about our plans and our hope for the future. I can tell you right now what my plan is for us, right? My plan is that the Lord would let me stay here a long time, that the Lord would flourish us together, that I'd preach the gospel clearly, that I'd lead you in the fear of the Lord, and that he would use that to bring renewal and new life in this very But That's what I hope for, that's what I pray for. But if I were to stand up here and say, this building is gonna be full in five years, then I'd be a fool. Why? Because tomorrow is uncertain and life is fragile. And we don't know what the day may bring. The truth is, you and I could both be dead in five years. And we've got to stare that in the eye, even as we talk about the good plans we believe the Lord has for us. 
And I, I kind of wonder if the Lord wanted to ordain a perfect sermon illustration for this with what happened last week. Some of you guys are sensing the irony maybe right now that last week I planned to preach this message about how things don't go according to plan. <laughs> and there I was working those sawhorses, right? With safety glasses on. Thank you very much to all of you who were asking. Working that circular saw and one little piece of sawdust just scraped across my eye and sliced that cornea open. And I had written an entire sermon about how things don't go according to plan and I couldn't even open my eyes to read it. And so I had to change my plans and I had to call Walter. And Walter, thank you so much. He started his sermon at seven o'clock Saturday night. It, the number of hours that expire between seven in the morning, uh, seven in the evening in the church service is longer than it takes me to write a sermon myself. And somehow the Lord equipped Walter to fill in for me and preach. And the Lord healed me in an instant when you guys gathered together and prayed for me. And so can we just sense how palpably I think the message that sends, who is in charge of this thing we're trying to do here? It's the Lord himself, right? Who is the one who can bring new life into this place? It's the Lord himself. It's not us who can do it. You may invite your friends and I may do a halfway decent job at remembering their names, but it is the Lord who would give the growth. And so we have to trust in him, even in the way we make plans. And that's why you hear me say things like, I'm praying the Lord gives us decades of flourishing together, because that's got to come out in the way. I don't say I am staying here forever and the Lord's going to flourish. No, it's, I am praying for decades of flourishing together. Well, another thing I say a lot is I'm praying that the Lord brings 10 new families here by the end of the year. That's why I say it like that, because we can't make promises. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we can ask the God who loves to give good gifts for his children. So as we plan for our future, we got to keep this in mind that we're doing it depending on him. And he is the one that can bring new life here. So what we need to do this morning then is first set our hearts right and then make sure that the way we plan reflects that newness that Jesus has given to our hearts, right? There's the inside heart that trusts him and then there's the outward reflection and the plans that talk that way. And so we're gonna look at one and then we're gonna look at the other. Uh, step one is to embrace tomorrow's uncertainty and life's fragility and our dependence on God for everything. So first, let's look at the truth of just how much we depend on God and let that renew our minds. He wants you to see, the Lord God wants you to see and be fully aware of and embrace the truth that every breath of air you have ever taken was made by him. And every meal you have ever eaten came from the bounty of his creation and someone else had a hand in making it or growing it and bringing it to you because we are fully dependent on him and his goodness for everything that we have. He wants us to see that and embrace it and love it. And more than that, he wants us to see how fragile human life really is. He, he wants us to know that his world is full of diseases and is full of car accidents and is full of terrible people who want to do terrible things to you and your children. And he wants us to see it and embrace it so that we can know that it is him who is in control and him that is in charge. And part of why he wants you to see that is because embracing our dependence on God rests deep at the heart of Christian godliness. Reliance on God leads to an entirely different lifestyle than reliance on yourself. 
And, uh, and I'll try to show you this from Psalm 39. I think we've got it to put on the screen. We're gonna, I'm gonna read verses four through seven of Psalm 139, Psalm 39, I'm sorry. And, and just look at how verses four through six lead to verse seven. He's talking about the fragility of life. He says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. You see that? He wants to know how feeble his life is and how quick his life is like a breath in and a breath out. And God, let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. I mean, what is 70 years in God's sight? Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing and he amasses riches and does not know who will gather him. So here is a psalmist who embraces the fact that life is short, life is fleeting, life is fragile and could end at any minute and embraces, he loves it and he wants to know more of it. You know, I used to, in our house back in Kentucky, it had this beautiful backyard view and you could see the Kentucky Hills rolling. And after I'd read my Bible most mornings, I'd stand at the back window with a cup of coffee and just look out the window for like 10 minutes. And there'd be a lot of times this mist out there in the hills. And by nine o'clock, it would be gone. Uh, and the Lord says, our life is a mist that appears for a while and vanishes. And here's a really funny thing. In three years of living in that house and looking out that back window, I never figured out what time the mist goes away. And I think that's because it goes away at a different time every day, right? It's there. And it's not like 9.14 a.m., it's gone. Like, just all of a sudden, it's just gone. You don't know when. And he says, your life is like that. It's like that mist between the hills that's just there, and you don't even know how long it's going to last there before it's just gone. Here's a psalmist who loves that and is celebrating the fleetingness of our life. And here's why. Look what it develops in him in verse 7. It says, and now, Lord, for who do I wait? My hope is in you. To see the fleetingness of your life is to look at the Lord and hope and say, I can't trust in myself, but I trust in him. My hope is in you. That is what embracing the uncertainty and fragility of life can do. It can help you to put your hope in the Lord, to, to fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, right? To see how great and provisional he is, that he gives us everything he has, just to revere him like that. Well, there's the beginning of wisdom. You want to make good plans. You're going to need that wisdom. And that's going to start with the fear of the Lord. So embrace the fleetingness of your life and the uncertainty of tomorrow and the greatness of God and learn to fear the Lord and then open your plan and start making plans with a heart that depends on the Lord. That's the good side of this coin. That's the heart that depends on the Lord, what it does. On the other side, the Bible also speaks of the self-reliant, arrogant heart as well. And it paints a picture of it in verse, uh, Psalm 10 that I'll get to in a minute. This is the heart that says, I keep myself alive, right? I'm a self-made person. I rely on myself and I'll live life as I see fit because I'm the one that works hard for this money. I'm the one that keeps myself alive and so I have earned the right to do whatever I want. That, sound, that feels like home, doesn't it? I mean, that's the American way right there. We were raised in that and it feels just all too comfortable when I read about it. But the Bible equates that self-reliant heart with wickedness. It just uses them 
interchangeably in a way that must sound strange to us. It talks about them like they're one, and it talks about the lifestyle that that kind of heart leads to. Let me read to you Psalm 10, verses 2 through 11. It says, In pride the wicked, hot, uh, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts, you hear that boast of pride and boasts, the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. And the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not see him. You see how it's going back and forth in here? This is prideful and wicked at the same time. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high and they're out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be at adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the village and the hiding places. He kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion lurks in his lair and he lurks to catch the afflicted. And then he catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He and bows down and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones and he says to himself God has forgotten he has hidden his face he will never see it this the psalmist says is the fruit of boasting and arrogance and it scares me senseless James focuses on the way that it leads to overly confident plans but the Psalms paint the fuller and the darker picture. Boasting and arrogance, forgetting God, and acts of wickedness go hand in hand. Wisdom is proved by her deeds and out of overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And here's the scary thing. We saw how dark that self-reliant heart is, right? And on the other hand, we gotta admit just like how natural that feels to us, right? I mean, that, that self-reliance, that I am a self-made person, that's the American way. Well, that's the sea that we swim in. And if you grew up in the United States like I did, you were raised in that sea and you have been swimming in that sea for your whole life. And I think that might be part of why this message resonates so much with me and maybe so much with you too, because we're in a very similar situation to James's original readers. They were under Roman rule, which brought some difficult things, but it brought some good things too. It brought really stable government. Uh, it brought a great system of roads and infrastructure. It provided aqueducts for a lot of people's needs. And so all of a sudden, basic needs are met and you can get to another town safely if you want to. And there's stable enough government that you can trade and hope that maybe you won't get ripped off. And man, human beings are really good in situations like that at developing strong businesses and strong economies. And so their economy was booming. Businesses were forming. People were having success. People who, you know, their grandfathers were poor, but they are rich because of the opportunities that have been afforded to them. And that was breeding pride and arrogance in them. They're making confident assertions. We will go to this town. We will travel here. We will trade. We will make a profit. As happens when the government gets stable and people are able to avail themselves much profit. That's what we do. It happened back in Genesis when the people united under a mighty leader named Nimrod. Right? They built the first great city, the city of Babel building great things. And then they look around and they say, let's build a tower to heaven and be like God, right? Flourishing city and all of a sudden, boom, let's do something prideful and arrogant. 
James's readers have a stable, strong government, their economy flourishes, and they grow in pride and arrogance and say, we will travel to this city, we will do this, we will do that. And we today have a stable government, probably the best infrastructure of all time. I mean, interstates and the internet, who would have thought of that in the first century, the business opportunities that we've got. We're building iPhones out of dirt. I mean, that just blows my mind that it's just dirt in your hand and it does all that stuff. Incredible things that we are doing and building and what kind of spirit is that breeding in the American way? A spirit that says, I belong to myself and I'll do what I want and no one has the right to tell me to do what I want with my self. Self-reliance and the same arrogant spirit that James is speaking against here and the Lord is protecting us against when he says, when he says, do not make confident assertions for life is short, life is fleeting. So sensing the fragility of life and the dependence on God, when it's done in Christian faith, it moves us to a worshipful life, uh, life in the fear of the Lord. And on the other hand, arrogantly relying on ourselves leads to wickedness and all sorts of difficult things. Upon that foundation, James teaches that if you've got the overly confident plans, you've got the self-reliant heart too. And James's original readers, knowing the Psalms, would have filled in those gaps and known all the other things that that leads to. Okay, so now that we've got the heart down, the heart that the Lord wants to develop in us, let's look at the way that should affect our plans. I think two Proverbs just say it really well, and they say basically the same thing that James is saying, but we'll read them to you. Proverbs 16.9 says, the, man, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And then Proverbs 27.1 says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring forth. So same thing James is saying, right? Boasting, we will do this, we will make this profit. No, don't do that because you don't even know what's going to happen in the next 24 hours. And so James says we should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or do that. And some people take that really literally, like maybe you have a friend who says God willing in front of like every, every plan. So many people know that maybe, so maybe you do that yourself. I have a friend that signs every email with the letters DV, which I think is the Latin abbreviation for the phrase God willing in Latin, because every plan he makes over email, he just wants to make sure, you know, God will. That's one way that you can do it, but you don't have to do it that way if you don't want to. There, there are subtle ways to show that you trust in the Lord's providence in your planning. And I think the best model that I've ever seen you know, this is actually the Apostle Paul in the Bible who wrote a lot of letters and in his letters he talked about his plans in the Bible. And listen to the way that he talks about his plans. In the book of Romans he says, I hope to see you, I, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped by you and to enjoy your company for a while. Right? Not I'm going to Spain and coming to see you, right? I hope to see you on my way to Spain. Or he writes to the Corinthians, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. And a few chapters later, he says, and, and perhaps I will stay there and even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. Right. And then to the Romans again, he says, always in my prayers, making request if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. So 
So what's the difference? On one hand, it's words. On the other hand, it's, it's prayer, right? Word, words like hope to, I hope to do this, or if the Lord wills, to which we might also add, I plan to, or I'm praying for, or I'm asking for, or I want to. Words like that make all the difference when they naturally come out of our hearts that rely on the Lord for everything. And the other difference is prayer. When you know you're depending on God for your plan to come about, that's gonna drive you to your knees. That's gonna drive you to plan over every appointment that's in your calendar, on your phone, or on your diary, wherever it is. You're gonna be on your knees praying about every last one of them. That is the fruit of Christian maturity that I think the Lord desires to bear in each of us today through his word. And I wonder if some of you here today know that you aren't a Christian, and I hope if that's the case, or if maybe you're not sure you are or not, I hope what the Lord has done here this morning is just shown you a glimpse of just how good his ways are. Because the truth is, he has made a way for you to come back to him and follow him as well. And he did that by breaking his own body and shedding his own blood for us on the cross. For those of you that follow Jesus, we are about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I want to ask our deacons to come forward. Uh, I hope this time of the word has prepared you to receive this supper. Let me ask the deacons to come forward now.